0: And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.
1: Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles.
2: Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 627. To this week uh, It's my
3: birthday tomorrow
2: That's right It's Oh my god Kyle right? Clark's birthday Kyle
3: Clark is is rad it On actually, Twitter It is actually my birthday The day this is out So they're listening to this On my birthday so this is The day long <gasps>
2: Happy birthday oh, Kyle you. It's your fucking birthday Because birthday
3: songs, You know is, uh, I like that It's, it's, very, it's a very 90's birthday song
2: Yeah I mean it's You know we'd have to pay royalties If we sang the actual birthday song nah. It's your fucking birthday <laughs> Kyle that's a,
0: that's a better
3: birthday song I like the casual it's your fucking birthday,
0: birthday. Kind of a
3: Rob Thomas approach to it there. It's <laughs> yeah, it's your fucking birthday. Yeah. Yeah, oh, it's your fucking birthday. Kind of morphed into Alanis Morissette at the end. <laughs> well, it's your birthday. <laughs> you had <I don't> to know. <laughs> <laughs> just start bringing up 90s people that I can It's channel. like having like 90s demons inside of you. Just pull your shirt open and just Rob Thomas, Alanis Morissette, coming
2: at Yeah, it's like that scene in Scrooge where he gets in the elevator and death is there. Exactly. The open thing and all those <laughs> yeah.
3: My body is a road map of the 90s. <laughs> that would be an amazing affliction to have.
2: This, uh, this podcast is, uh, I'm going to say this was huge for us. Um, this is Bill Gates. Oh, I've heard of him. You've, have you heard of William H. Gates the third? And uh, is that his real full name? William H. Gates the third. I didn't yeah. know about the third. I yeah. try to keep track of that shit. Yeah, William H. Gates the third. Which, by the way, if you're uh, a billionaire captain of industry. I feel like traditional captain of industry rules would dictate that you need to go by initials. Only like he should have been W. H. Gates the third.
3: Oh, that's a good name. I mean, too. Bill was my dad's name. My dad was a bowler. Like dad didn't. Bill Microsoft. is very disarming. Yeah, and Bill Gates was
2: actually very disarming. Yeah, super sweet guy. It was it was really fun to talk to him. We went up there because the annual Gates Foundation letter uh, is is coming is coming out, out today. today. Actually, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where they basically tell you the Gates Foundation has you know set aside. I mean, it's, it's they got a fifteen-year, like billion
3: dollars of money that they're. Uh, it's a really inspiring letter. Like, like I was uh, reading through it, and it's it's amazing. Like, they're such a great foundation. I
2: mean, you know, one school of thought is hoard all your money, and another school of thought is like fix the world, <laughs> give as much of it back as you can. It's incredible the so, things they've accomplished. So there's a, there's a few things about this uh, this episode. Number one, we talked a, a lot about the Gates Foundation. You know, we drifted a bit into. Some of the nerdier stuff that I wanted to ask him about. But you did ask him if he's played Zork, and well, I was very proud of him. You. you know what I forgot to ask him? Gif-jif. Oh! Oh! I know. I'm mad. I, for- I should have asked him the ultimate mm. question for me. But uh, one fella in particular was... Exceptionally keen on us focusing on the foundation, as you'll hear, you know, which I completely understand. I mean, like, they're, you know, the work they're doing is incredible and, of course, should
3: be. We're trying to save the world. We're trying to save the world. Could you please stop talking about obscure computer games from
2: 1981?
3: But what kind of world do we want to live in without <laughs> disease or poverty if you can't talk about obscure text adventures?
2: <laughs> so, but, but I will say this. you know, In the moments where we drifted into that with, with him, I mean, obviously he was passionate. He's obviously passionate about the Gates Foundation. But there was something really special I could see in his – just being in front of him and seeing in his face talking about Comdex, talking about like, the, old day, the early days of computing and how they built the TRS-80. I mean, like, it really – I
3: could see like this is a guy. This, he, this, he loves this. Hearing him rattle off old program code language, just sort of, just like it's nothing. Oh, it was so much fun! So cool! It was
2: a really great experience. And so, when we were wrapping up the interview, the reason that it's uh, that you will see that it's an hour and fifty minutes long um, is because, as we, as you know, as Bill was leaving to go do something else, uh, they said, oh, "Okay, so if you want to go downstairs, you can talk to some other people from the foundation." Uh, and at first, I, you know, like I, I, fully admit, I think I was like, oh, you know, I think I'm good. You know, we got we got the guy. Like I think, uh, <laughs> you know, I think, I think, I think we're good. But I thought, you know, let's. I, I'm kind of curious to see. And they said, well, there's this guy named Jay Wenger, and Jay is is heading up. He's an epidemiologist, and he's heading up our efforts to eradicate polio. <laughs> so I was like all right, well, that actually sounds kind of interesting. So I sat down and talked to Jay for about 35, 40 minutes. Uh, and then uh, Julie Sunderland, she handles the investment pool that the, Ga- the Gates Foundation essentially invests a, like a billion and a half dollars like like you would if you were an, like an investment pool. But instead of trying to make money, what they're trying to generate is a better lives for people. So I talked to her for like another 35 minutes. So Bill is um, zero to 40 minutes. And so if you feel like... I got it, you know, like that's that's all I came here for. That's great, but I would also further challenge you to listen to Jay, who had an, in, an incredible Jay's stories in particular blew my mind incredible stories about about literally trying to eradicate a disease from the human race. Uh, and Julie uh, was a, phen- a phenomenal talker and super engaging, and, and so many things that I didn't understand about like. Like why you can't just go give a country a billion dollars and go okay you're fixed, you know like, <laughs> like ways that they have to do that by building infrastructure and 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 creating technologies and things that actually uh, like make the social soil fertile for for them to to flourish. So um, I, I would say you know it, g- give it a shot and listen to the whole thing because they they both at the end of it I was like holy shit I can't believe I almost didn't do that. Because I wouldn't have got, we wouldn't have gotten this, and so you know, I just want to thank the Gates Foundation for having us up there, and um, and and it was uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, <laughs> happy birthday, Kyle
3: Clark! Here's
2: <laughs> Podcast Number Six Twenty Seven with William H. Gates III.
3: Now entering Nerdist.com.
2: Our name tags on. We'll make it easy. Oh, did I keep we're mine on? Tag. Uh, so you can't be in this building without a name tag. <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to ask you too. I'm sorry, you're gonna yeah, have no, to. Uh...
3: I, I can only not have. Are you, his, are you? You're literally a...
2: his. Na- you're like his human name tag. You let
3: everyone know. That's how I let Everyone know that this is. Good. Are yeah. you making a bootleg of this podcast? That's right, I am. Or <laughs> it's free. You're not. <laughs> or or you're know, yeah, to we did give us. it away.
2: Uh, I think we're about to get tased. <laughs> are we gonna get tased if we, we ask a question? Okay, good. All right.
3: Well, it depends on how this goes, I guess. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well, now why there's does, pressure. Why does his recorder look better than ours? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty similar.
1: Yeah. I, I don't no, know. It's bit i a different. feel like yeah. his design be, is a like, little more...
3: compare afterwards audio quality. <laughs> 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 He's in another room. It sounds even better somehow.
2: Yours has one of those cool buttons on the side. Uh, welcome to your offices, Mr. Bill Gates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering... Uh, have you? So you've been doing meetings. You've been doing interviews all day for the Gates Foundation. Is that what's going on today?
1: Yeah, I started uh, at eight this morning. and Did a couple. Uh, the annual letter comes out uh, next Wednesday. Yep. And so it's a chance to talk about what we saw, and of course this year focus on what can be done in the the next fifteen years. I read the letter. It was at eight pages. Great,
2: quick read, but a lot of information about. There were some things in the letter that I actually never occurred to me. There's, I want to try to cover a lot in the little bit of Great. time that we have with you. So it's flus conversational. If you want to swear, go ahead. There's no restrictions. <laughs> Damn, there, there we go. go. Hey, it's wait a minute. Close. You're getting Not there. The T word. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but
2: oh my God. we're getting there. We're getting. It's
3: there. getting so filthy. Uh,
2: but ultimately, what never occurred to me. Someone told me a couple years ago. I think people just assume, oh, well, if you have a lot of money, you can just give money to someone and that fixes all their problems. And the answer is no. You actually have to – from what I want to understand, you actually have to give them the
1: infrastructure to figure out how to distribute that money properly. Is that true? Well, in the end of the day, it's not money that counts. It's having a good job, being well-educated, having your kids be healthy. And so making sure – that those systems, the education system, the primary health care system, the food growing uh, system, agricultural productivity area, those things work well. It's pretty complicated because it's a mix of government and the private sector and really learning why those things haven't uh, worked well in poor countries. It, it does uh, require a lot of learning because you know it's far away, it's very different Than what we experience day to day in a in a country that's that's quite well off. Yeah. Well, but is it because it kind of
2: seems like well, money is treating a symptom. You have to do the preventative work to make sure that people are educated, they have the right systems in place. But then to do that, don't you need money? Like, what's the what's the chicken and the egg scenario?
1: Well, if you go back three hundred years. you know things were pretty rough uh, over thirty percent of kids died before the age of five everywhere even the the country that was the best off. Some countries got ahead in terms of building uh, very productive agricultural systems, so the nutrition, the amount of food, and the the variety of food you got was very good then <clears throat> that's really the bootstrap. your agricultural productivity is kind of the the starting point then yeah. that Allows you, if you do that well, to do more in the way of education, to do more in infrastructure. Uh, And then, of course, we got electrification, mechanization. Productivity in the agriculture sector went up so dramatically that most of the labor then could go over to all these other uh, things. And uh, most of Africa is still back in that phase where uh, almost everybody's a farmer and most of their output uh, is simply for sustenance, just to feed themselves. And so we, we have a lot of understanding of, okay, we got productivity up. How can we help them do that? And you're right that when you're poor, the bootstrap is difficult. That's partly why foreign aid uh, and philanthropy come into play a role. Those governments, you know, say they look at malaria and say not only is that killing kids, but it's causing even the kids to survive Uh, because of the way their their brains have been messed up, to not be able to to learn, to not to be able to contribute, they might think, okay, we need to get rid of malaria. But the kind of science and money to create a malaria vaccine and get that out there, they just don't have the resources, the scale to do it. And so they do look uh, to the rich countries, including uh, the United States, to step up and say, okay, you've got science, you've got money, you know, this is all part of humanity. Uh, I talk about global citizenship in the letter. Uh, and that, some of that's been happening. And it it has helped uh, a number of poor countries move up. In fact, you know, if you go back to 1960, uh, there were only a few rich countries and lots of very poor countries. The big miracle of the last uh, 75 years is that, many of those poor countries like China, Mexico, Brazil, Thailand, South Korea went from poor into middle income. South Korea is actually the extreme. They've gone all the way yeah. to where now they're, uh, they're part of the rich country club. Um, but we, So we, we, we still have a number of poor countries, a lot of them in Africa, not just. You still have Yemen, Afghanistan, and a few others. But uh, numerically, uh, the most are are in sub-Saharan Africa, and you know we we know what what needs to be done. Uh, some of their soils aren't as good. You know their terrain. They don't have infrastructure. Without roads, a lot of the stuff is is more difficult. And when you're a poor country, you tend to have pretty poor governance. Sure. Uh, that and you don't have as many well-educated people. The people are spending their time getting enough foods. So the idea of voting is more about uh, expressing loyalty to your tribe than it is evaluating somebody's uh, bureaucratic excellence yeah. in, in creating things. And so governance tends not to work very well until you get up uh, to a, a middle income status. Now,
2: when you say uh, if you go back 300 years and you go back to 1960, you literally can do that, right? The Space Needle is a time machine that you're using to travel back in time. Am I I correct?
1: Well, I was alive in 1960. Uh, (laughs) What? What's that like? Five years old. Uh, You know, I was born a couple miles south of that uh, (laughs) Space Needle there. But we can we have an amazing view right now of the Space Needle and the EMP
2: Museum, which is incredible and. do you ever go, do you ever just, do you ever go wander around the EMP Museum? Are you yeah, a pop culture EMP, guy? Yeah, EMP, you
1: probably know that that's a Paul Allen creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a fascination with... Uh, fascination or obsession? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he plays the guitar. He sure does. Uh, he loved Jimi Hendrix. Uh, you know, I, he... And Paul would always say to me, "Are you experienced?" Uh,
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> he tried to help me uh, get yes well, on that. Yeah. We got to work. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, he built that, and it's you know it's actually nowadays it's got science fiction. Yeah. It's got yeah. quite a variety of things that they've been driving up the traffic. So it, yeah, it's kind of interesting that our visitor center is right there across uh, from the EMP, and then the that. Uh, this whole Seattle Center area had a World's Fair uh, back in 1963, uh, which is one of my earliest memories. Coming and seeing, you know, and at the time they were showing video phones and uh, Selectric typewriters. You know, oh, no. what was robots considered- in the home? <laughs> but, well, we're getting there. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, did you? I mean, so. It, are you, I'm kind of bummed. There's no more World's Fair. I mean, I understand that the internet and the sort of the localization of the global community sort of made it not as sexy to be like, "Oh, that's what's going on over there." Oh, that's what's going. You know, like now you can just, you know, you can just go you on to Gizmodo or something. Oh, these these
1: uh, these items are coming out. Like, do you do you miss the World's Fair? Well, there still are World's Fairs that take place. Uh, you know, we just had a Consumer Electronics Show. Well, I, yeah, of I course. didn't happen to go, yeah. so there's still place based uh stuff to show off things.
2: CES's hot hot air balloons were big this year at CES <laughs> as part of their fair. I loved uh did you like did you like CES, the grind of CES?
1: Yeah I gave the keynote there uh for over a decade. Uh I would do a kickoff and talk about you know how hardware and software were coming together in magic ways. Uh and there was another show that was in the fall there, Comdex. Uh that yes. was kind of the personal computer industry show, uh, that's where back in uh, uh, 1990, I gave a, a speech called Information at Your Fingertips and talked about your digital wallet and uh, how all the world's information would be there. No, it was fun. I mean, those those were events to kind of see what your competitors were doing and meet with your uh, channel the people who are selling the products. And so it was a big deal in my Microsoft day uh, to figure out how we'd make a splash at those shows,
2: but but now I mean it's na- now you know when channels like the E Network are showing you stuff from CES. But I, what, what were the early days of personal computing? What were these? What were these conventions like? And
1: Chris, then we're gonna get back to
2: the ladder. Yes, this is how the podcast works. Okay. Okay. It'd be great, but we want to get back to that. We want to focus on that. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. This okay. Is, okay. is just this great. is just the ebb and flow of how to the. Sure get back, yes, 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 yes. Chris, yes I promise. Great. Thank you. Uh, all right.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. The first computer shows were these West Coast Computer Fair, uh, and that's actually where I met Steve Jobs. He was in his booth with the some of the early Apple IIs, and I was there with the company, Mits, uh, who we did the software for that had this Altair 8800. Oh, the Altair. And the shows were kind of podunk, but there was a certain sense of excitement. You hmm. could go around and see things. And then when it got really big with Comdex, we were like, wow – uh, you know this is so corporate now people have models in their booth, and uh, yeah. you know it got really amazing and they built other exhibit halls uh, but at first, it was just kind of you know the people talking about their stuff and we actually created a a MITzmobile that went around the country and started uh, user groups and I spent a lot of my time uh, going out and speaking at user groups that 's a phenomenon that 's that 's not not as activist as it was back then.
2: Do, do you feel, I mean, what did you learn during that period that you're now applying to the foundation? Like, what, what are some of the things, what are some of the similarities and what are some of the tools that you feel you picked up?
1: Well, the idea of uh, taking on complex science and engineering projects and finding very smart people, uh, you know, getting to the basics of, hey, how do you stop malaria, how do you stop HIV, Uh, who's the smartest, let's, you know, commit resources to them, and even if it takes five, six years, and even if we hit some dead ends, let's stick with it. That kind of engineering uh, belief uh, that was core to Microsoft's success, that carries over to this work. The thing that's different is that in the IT space, if you come up with something fantastic, like a Windows 95, then, word of mouth, you know, a little bit of razzle dazzle, it, it gets out there. In the world we work in now, where you're trying to get vaccines to all the children in the world, you're working through healthcare systems that people don't necessarily show up, they don't have electricity, the healthcare center's not in the right place, uh, the training uh, isn't, isn't done the way it should be. And so, that delivery mechanism, we spend a lot of time both on that upstream invention, sure. uh, which is very, very, very key, you know, better seeds, new vaccines. But we also spend a lot of time on this, this delivery part, the downstream part, where you create women's groups and you create measurement systems, you get training programs in, and you're dealing with governments that have very, very few resources and not much background. And so how do you help get them to be self-sufficient and have, have the system work? Uh, there are places like Rwanda and Ethiopia where that's gone extremely well. There's places like Nigeria and Pakistan where it's, it still needs to be done.
2: Right. And so at least when you're writing code for a machine, it's basically a mathematical problem, I would assume. But when you're dealing with, like, do you, how do you crack social code, you know, like when you're basically trying to figure out how to organize people and how to how to essentially program a culture to – reprogram a culture to understand something?
1: Yeah, the social things – are not that mysterious. I mean if you get the women in the village together to talk about, hey, is the health care uh, being done properly and you know talk to each other about we all should get our children vaccinated, uh, you know that creates a pressure that uh, you know, helps maintain the, the performance of the system. And if you have a system that really checks vaccine stockouts, have somebody send a photo, of that storeroom, you know every week, and just look and say, "Hey, there's nothing there um, you know then, if the right rewards are in place, that measurement system can drive you to do things pretty well so I don't think it's it's because it's super complicated you're you have to do it with very finite resources and and people with very modest training, but we're getting there it's it's kind of like going out and creating user groups uh, you got to do it everywhere
3: yeah
2: does it when you started the foundation did it feel like oh this do you get that charge again of starting a brand new thing trying to revolutionize something trying to bring you know a technology where there was not technology
1: absolutely uh all of our programs you know just take one uh like sanitation of okay why don't uh, slums in poor countries have good sanitation, and you know what kind of problem is that? And could we uh, create something that would almost take the sanitation and make it valuable, and so it's worth cleaning it up and not having the diseases and the the smell that the the way it works today is is uh, so awful. When you first sit with the engineers and say, okay, what you know, what's the energy content? What's hard about this? That is like kicking off a software product. Software development cycles tend to be shorter than vaccines or um, sludge management uh, (laughs) systems or even new seeds. A lot of the foundation stuff is a six to eight year product cycle because of the trials that you have to do, uh, safety trials for medicines or field based trials for crops. And in software, you know used to be two or three years. Now, for a lot of things, it's more like six months or a year. So you do get spoiled in IT that the ability to get very quick feedback and uh, change products very rapidly. Most other industries, even in the rich world, don't have that type of, of quick cycle time.
2: I was surprised. It never occurred to me in reading the letter, and it's uh, one of the goals was to bring digital banking to – to people, and it never occurred to me. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Well, they need to ha- they need to have a way to store their money and be able to distribute their money across long distances, and you know, especially if they're used to like a barter system economy. So, how do you h- how do you go in and teach people like this is a bank and you can trust it, and you know, you don't have to put you, you don't have to put whatever money you have under a mattress. You can put it
1: here, and even though you can't see it, it's fine. Well, they have uh, money lenders in the village. And they just charge extremely high interest rates. And, you know, so if you have to fund a funeral or medicine, then, you know, that's where you turn. So they have the services, but they're very inefficient. They're putting their savings into, say, buying a cow or something that, uh, you know, can get sick, or if you want to sell part of it, that can be very tricky. And it's really just because, The way the rich world designed banking, it's got high overhead. It can't deal with a $1 or $0.50 transaction without taking 20 percent of the money to fund the personnel uh, and overhead costs. And so what the digital revolution gives us is a chance to build a banking system where for even very small amounts of money, the transaction fees are under 2 percent, which people view as reasonable – and so Kenya, which is the place this has happened the most, uh, your cell phone is a, is a debit card, and the fees are very low. Particularly if you're staying, you're not converting back into currency. You're just taking money that's sent to you, and then you go into the shop and and pay digitally there. And now people are creating innovative products for farmers and school fees, and um, so you know another thing we take for granted. Has been a huge problem for the poorest that it, it's not available to them.
2: Yeah. Now I want to I want to ask a couple history questions, but I promise you it's going to get us back. <laughs> I'm trying to create as many shareable moments as possible. Um, <laughs> what do you do on a teletype model 33? What can you do on that machine?
1: Well, you can't do lowercase. case. Uh, <laughs> so, so it's like having caps lock on all the time. What you do, <laughs> you know, the computers were so expensive back then that you would go on, turn on that teletype in what was called local mode, where you would type, and a paper tape would encode the characters. It was a eight channel uh, paper tape, and so it would ASCII encode uh, what you type. So you type up your program uh, in BASIC. Then you would take that tape and put it in the tape reader, call up the computer because you were being charged for every second you were online, and you could play that tape, which would go at 10 characters per second, which is faster than you can type, so that saves time. And then you would ask it to run, and you would pay for the CPU time. Now, one of the teachers at this school – uh, accidentally had an infinite loop in his program and so he went and spent $300 before he realized how to stop <laughs> it and so no teacher ever wanted to go in there ever again and so myself, Paul Allen, and a few other kids you know, kind of took over this teletype room and we ended up teaching the programming classes and you know, we got down the learning curve, figured out uh, what to do enough that when a company uh, in town here uh, got a computer They kind of brought us in To just mess around And uh, so we ke- we kept getting experiences Even at a very young age That gave us a lot of exposure To very state-of-the-art uh, Software and programming
2: Well, I just think it's interesting and, and I think it also does apply To the work you're doing With the foundation That you're coming into This technology Which there's not really Much of a precedent for And going, oh, well, we have There's the potential For this thing here But not only do we Have to figure out what types of things we can make. We have to figure out what it is like. We have to try to understand what the possibilities are. There's almost a, there's almost like a there's philosophy there more than just math and engineering.
1: Well, you have to see what's possible. You know that you can eradicate diseases, that uh, you can raise productivity. There's some you know precedents for these things. There was the Green Revolution uh, that Norman Borlaug. Led where they got much better seed varieties in the 1960s and seventies, and that took where people had expected a lot of starvation actually uh countries like India instead of having starvation were actually able to raise the number of calories per person uh, during exactly the period where they they thought that would happen because that factor of two with the better seeds made such a a magical sure. difference and it was you know that's like a piece of software uh that that he got out to those farmers, but when but when you're looking at technology
2: in 1968, are you seeing like this is this is there's so much here in this machine with no lowercase? There's so much here, like you're essentially having to create the idea of the technology in addition to advancing the technology.
1: Well, the key insight uh, that Gordon Moore said is that we'd have exponential improvement in these things, and. You know, at age 13, I knew enough math to say that hey, if you're going to be doubling, then what you're saying is computing power is going to be effectively free. And if you look at that world where only a few big organizations have computers, and you know they're used for uh, government scientific programs or printing bills and things, you say, okay, how would it be used if if it was free? And that's where the dream of personal computing. Um, a small group of people, including myself and Paul Allen, Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, you know Jim Warren, a bunch of people, had a very different conception that that this was going to be a tool for personal creativity, personal communication, and you know eventually once they all got hooked together, this information at your fingertips phenomenon would emerge out of that. So we had a it, even though it's kind of a quantitative thing to say something's going to get a million times better. It's qualitatively different, and even people like Ken Olson, who was the CEO of DEC, you know, said why would anybody want a personal computer? Because he was thinking about how many computers – where he was, uh, he and his team were the revolutionary who said, no, it's not just mainframes. It's not just million-dollar computers. It's <coughs> $10,000 computers, and we came along and said, no, it's, it's $200 computers. Uh, and it did require looking at it, at things in a in a very different way. The software association, there weren't many software companies. There were about twenty or thirty who did mainframes, mini computer software. Their big award was when you sold ten thousand copies. And they called me up after I'd done the Altair and the Commodore PET and the Apple II and the Radio Shack TRS eighty and a whole bunch of machines. That was my first computer. And uh, they said, "Well, how many copies have you sold?" And I said, four million And they said, that's that's not possible. There are not 4 million computers in the world. And I said, yeah, actually there are. 90% of all the computers in the world run Microsoft BASIC. Uh, There's this thing that's happened without (coughs) the traditional computing world noticing. And that's why it was so kind of wild when IBM actually came to us and said, okay, we want to get into this new world. You help uh, design this thing. You do all the software for it. And, and do it in two years because it usually took them five years to get a, a product done.
2: My, uh, yeah, TRS-80 was my first computer and uh, my favorite game, <coughs> did you ever play the Zork series? Sure. You love the, you like the Zork series? What were some of your other favorite?
1: Yeah, TRS-80, you know, we did the character set where you could do borders and, and things. TRS-80 was interesting because I had to cram everything into that really small ROM and they were very impatient. <laughs> uh, about getting the thing done they'd actually had a f- uh really limited integer basic uh before, but then we decided to make it uh a lot richer Tier 80 was a fun project to work on and you know, we'd let you do address the screen uh you used to be you could only do serial output, but then we'd let you. Put things in arbitrary places on the screen. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that sounds, that's that so was, fun though. It's pretty gooey. <laughs> People don't understand that all we could do is characters. Gooey, graphic the graphical user interface. At the time, we couldn't do arbitrary bitmaps bit on the screen. The graphics for evolution of TRS 80 <coughs> was very, you know, kind of big blocks. Uh, and then they did a product called Color Computer that got more resolution. That was the second
2: iteration. Yeah, yeah I had that one too. Color
1: computer was really good. Well, you could hook it up uh, to your TV. The, like, you could hook the you could hook the
2: t- the terminal up to your TV, and the TRSA that I had was basically just an all-inclusive, it just looked like an old-timey computer.
1: Yeah, it had that black-and-white screen built in, but colored computer was more like an Apple II. Uh, it was more advanced than an uh, Apple II, where it used the TV display, and it was able to generate colors. That was 6800-based, uh, whereas the... The trs 80 was Z80, Z80 based. So there were about five different chips that I did basic for. 6502, 6800, Z80, 80 were the the main ones. Um, And then, you know, the big milestone, of course, is when we moved to what was called 16-bit computing, because that's the bus size. But really, it was 20. (laughs) We went from 16-bit addressing to 20-bit addressing. Uh, You know, which that factor of 16 made a difference. And then, of course, we went to 32-bit. Addressing, uh, which is what uh, carried us for most most of the year. Now we're up at sixty four bit addressing.
2: Oh, I read I read a I read a quote from you from nineteen eighty one that said six hundred and forty k ought to be enough for anybody. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that is not a correct. <laughs> that's quote. not a correct quote. Co- okay, please
1: now now it is time to to set the record straight. Yeah, so we went from the eight bit computers, all these early ones. Uh, they were 2 to the 16th, 64K addressability. And so once you hit 64K, that was it. Now, we did, people did plug in cards with what it was called bank switching, where even though you only have 64K address, you could change the mode and say, okay, now I'm, I'm switching uh, these other memory chips in. Then, when I went from when we commenced IBM, to use the it was eighty eighty eight, which is apparent to the eighty eighty six, that gave us that twenty bit addressing. So that's a megabyte, and we took some of that and used it for ROM and I O. That's how you get from a megabyte down to six forty k, and that was you know a factor of ten gives you some room. And so software like uh, uh, Mitch Kapoor did one two three, which was kind of a, a, a breakthrough spreadsheet because he had the extra addressability, but it still wasn't going to be enough. We had done a lot of VAX work, which was a full 32-bit address space. Uh, PDP-10 was a strangely 36-bit address space. So I never thought 640K uh, would be enough. It was a, it was a nice, it to us over, and it gave us enough to do graphics. And so the, the IBM PC had, had graphics, 640 by 200 on the normal video card. Uh, but then it's the next iteration, which is the Mac, where the graphics gets really fast and, and really good, or 386 based computers.
2: What do you, and again, this is going to apply to solving global problems. But so, you know, in the computing world, you're looking around and you're going, okay, are you looking at what other people are doing and going, how can we, how do we make our mark or find our place? You're basically, there's a healthy competition going on in the world at that point, in the world of technology. Are you essentially, is there a competition with the foundation for, you know, mortality and humanity? Like you're basically almost fighting the elements in a weird kind of way.
1: Yeah, it's not classic competition in that, you know, there's 10 groups working separately on malaria and, you know, one will win and nine will lose. Everybody who works on (laughs) malaria uh, shares all their ideas and it's through the combination of, Better bed nets, better drugs, better delivery, better diagnostics, better modeling. We're going to need all those things uh, to defeat the disease. So when you know, there's a lot of gatherings about infectious diseases here because we have uh, a lot of expertise, and in most of these areas, we're the uh, the biggest funder, and everybody's just working together on the same problem, and. You know, that's kind of good because things are more open and helpful, um, and very different than in, in the computer industry, where it's, you know classic uh, kind of uh, market-based competition, which works super well for software, or, you know, how many Thai restaurants should you have, or <laughs> uh, various things. Uh, but we have s- there's so few resources in the world compared to how tough these problems are uh, that the communities really pull together. Yeah, so kind of the opposite of computer world where no one wants to share anything with anyone. Well, no, that's not true. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, we decided that having the platform be available and nobody needed permission to write software or to distribute software. It's funny we've gone backwards now because uh, to sort of maintain quality, uh, now you're forced to buy through these stores, and so in, in a way, it's less flexible now to run arbitrary bits on a device uh, than it was in the, the heyday of personal computing. Now, you know, there's certain pro-user u- pro reasons why that control uh, isn't isn't just pure, purely bad, but it's a tiny bit less flexible. Hmm. Uh, is convenience
2: the enemy, do you think, in our culture? It's like, obviously, in the opening statement of the letter is, you know, when Bill and Paul Allen uh, saw a world that basically where the computers were everywhere and and we're part of our entertainment and part of our work but is is do you think convenience is part of our cultural enemy and not because back then it's like oh if you wanted computing you kind of had to have some type of understanding about how it works and now no one you don't really understand anymore it's like oh just turn it on and make it work and have it send me a car you know Are, are we too
1: spoiled with convenience no it's it's great that we can take things and make them simple so you can focus on other things uh you know, if, if somebody's writing a book, I'm glad they don't have to understand how we do footnotes and fonts and <laughs> scaling and ligatures. You know, we did a lot of work so that they can, you know, focus on how they uh, do their their creative process. No, it's amazing what a tool the personal computer and now tablets, phones, you know, all the incarnations of, of digital devices are letting us communicate in better ways, be more creative. You know, it's revolutionizing the media <coughs> business, even scientific collaboration, which the foundation's involved. in. the fact that we can take all our studies and make them free on the Internet. Sure. You know, the storage cost is a rounding error. The ability of anybody to search in and see patterns. You know, basically every trial we do, we create a digital form of it. And then even pe- people working in other areas can take that data and, and, and learn from it. So – the fact that we hide old complexities, uh, that's, that's the nature of progress. What's your
2: favorite font?
1: Uh, you know, we did this – there was this very cool idea to take the fact that the red, blue, and green dots aren't at the same place and actually use that to create what are called true type fonts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where you, you get more resolution by actually playing with the colors. And it turns out some people see the fringing effects slightly more than other people. So there's even a parameter uh, that you can tune where you give up a little resolution and you get a little less of that funny color thing. Anyway, that was one of our – when we were doing true type fonts, that was to me the the very coolest thing was we figured out how to get how to get more resolution out of an LCD screen. <laughs> Do you miss that stuff? Well, I'm working on stuff like that that's very similar, you know, I we had a, a session with Nathan Miravold and Max Levchin last week where we talked about how to use digital currency systems to reduce corruption because you can say when you transfer this money, oh, for that you need to take a picture of the the car that you filled, put the gasoline into. You know, if you're going to collect your vaccination fee, you have to take a picture of, uh, you know, yourself doing those vaccinations. So we get to do invention. Uh, you know, now it's focused on the needs of the poorest. But when you're talking about this sewage processing machine and the complex ways that it deals with, sometimes the input's very dry, sometimes very wet. You know, can it handle that? Uh, how reliable is this thing going to be? Or you're talking about new things with vaccine technology? It's the same type of kind of. I get to learn a lot. Uh, meet with great scientists. You know, take big risks about pursuing different approaches for these diseases. It it feels, you know, as as fun as as the innovation from the early computing days, which I I love. Well, what a, it, when and I know you, uh, you guys are working on more
2: effective condoms for third world countries as well. And what an amazing problem solving! To say, oh well, it's not just that we have to have a more effective contracept- form of contraception. But – or or to to protect against uh, spreadable diseases, but also to actually, like, make it as natural as possible so people are more motivated. Like, it's really getting to the underlying part of the problem of, like, motivating people to want to use them.
1: Yeah, in a sense, you know, condoms should reduce HIV transmission. um, And yet, you know, a lot of men – don't choose to use them so this idea of using you know carbon nanotubes to make a structure that uh is not permeable uh and yet uh you know isn't like a thick thick layer of of rubber uh you know we've funded we've given a lot of people not much money uh for the first stage it was just a hundred thousand but a lot of people applied saying they had ideas about how to do that and uh you know now we're getting results and deciding who we fund for the next stage that's so typically about th- 3 to 5 million
2: what were the uh, na- now that nerd culture has basically become very widely accepted which it was not when i was growing up and i'm sh- i don't know what it was like what were what were the proto nerds like and what was their place in the social stratum
1: well in an extreme sense you're only a nerd if you're you know not social and people aren't talking to you and you're not talking to them and you're just kind of going your computer and just sitting there all day. And uh you know, now the term is used in such a variety of ways. You know, anybody who understands software or talks about, you know, technological thing, you know, back then it was sort of the kind of a shunning of <coughs> the athletes are cool, right. you know, the cheerleaders are cool. You know, if, if the computer guy asks the cheerleader out, she knows to say no. Uh, <laughs> she <laughs> that, said that, yes later. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, she, she, or at least she regretted saying no, yeah. <laughs> which is more important. Uh, so, yeah, you know, t- it's it's great that, you know, girls learning code or, uh, you know, being facile with computers is, is kind of a mainstream accepted thing. And so... You know, now these terms geek and nerd, you know, it's not totally clear, even hacker, uh, you know, what does that mean? It used to mean you crashed – these big time sharing computer systems, and, and got in trouble for doing it. Uh, and- <laughs> <laughs> now it's just like, oh, I, I got into
2: WordPress. You know, yeah. like I don't know if that really counts as the same thing, but it is. The, the The lines are a little bit blurred, and now there's a pop culture element in addition to just a just a technological element. But as we're sort of as we're sort of winding, as we're gliding this bird in for a landing, what uh, what types of responsibilities do you think that you know? Because obviously, not everyone. Not everyone can be a, you know a major philanthropist like what are some like micro philanthropies that we can engage in? what can everyone do
1: well in in the tech world, almost every company can think about uh, access you know our is the service they offer the hardware they offer uh, you know can it get out uh, to kids in the inner city to these developing countries, and often when you have software with very low marginal cost, the idea of having tiered pricing, where if you can do the distinction right, and we do it with vaccines and drugs, the idea that you'd make it be, you know, say, free in education or free in uh, African countries, there are ways you can make the stuff available. Or, you know, if you have technical skills, say, during the Ebola crisis, something like (coughs) how do we look at the maps and do the case reporting system, more broadly, everyone can be what we call a, a global citizen, and have some awareness of this huge difference uh, between the, the poorest two billion and in, in the life we have. And use learn take some aspect and learn about it, uh, it's, you know, a disease, some environmental thing, a particular country. Uh, they can try and, and get out. I encourage people to visit, you know, go for a nice safari, but then have a couple of days where you. Uh, see what what the conditions are, and you'll be motivated because you'll see there's been huge progress, and that you know it's pretty hands on stuff. You'll meet meet people that you'll you'll want to help. Uh, people's voices politically are very important because the big money actually is not philanthropy. The big money is these government aid budgets that fund Global Fund for HIV or Gavi for vaccines, and we're always on the verge with budget cuts that this far away stuff. Uh, You know, hey, does that really work? Uh, Will somebody complain if we cut it? Um, We need a a movement that says, "No, we're all part of humanity. We care about those things. We don't want, even when budgets are tough, we don't want those things to be cut." So we're trying to draw people in uh, because, you know, part of the beauty of, of the increased innovation and wealth that the world has as we ought to be able to embrace humanity as whole, not just say, okay, do I have enough to eat? Does my family, you know, does my country, but rather uh, at a global level, things like HIV or malaria, let's get rid of those, and let's avoid the negatives. Let's, you know, not let epidemics sweep the world. Let's not let climate change take this farmer productivity, which is always on the edge for these substance farmers, you know, get them better seeds and, you know, minimize... Uh, The amount of uh, uh, heating, global warming that takes place so that uh, whatever innovations we have can offset uh, that that negative.
2: And what's ultimately your – how do you view success like across any – for yourself, for the foundation? Like do you have a couple – like a principle or two that defines like this is how I know I'm successful or this is how I know this project is
1: successful? Well, we have some very particular goals, Um, and even though malaria can't be eradicated in the next 15 years, uh, I'd be super disappointed if in my lifetime we can't bring an end to that. Likewise, uh, HIV, TB, I say in the letter that in the next 15 years we'll get four diseases, polio uh, is the best known of those, and that's pretty incredible because heretofore there's been only smallpox, so one in the entire history of humanity, so getting four now and then being on the path to get uh, other big ones uh, after that, you know, that's pretty exciting. The credo of the foundation is all lives have equal value. And so the dream would be to say that, you know, somebody born in in Africa has as much chance of uh, getting nutrition, education, surviving to adulthood as somebody born anywhere on the planet and that gap is is being greatly reduced uh you know in my lifetime you know maybe we won't get it to absolutely zero but uh we we can shrink it it'll be say 90% less <laughs> than uh when we started this philanthropic work so that that feels pretty good and then the idea of spreading uh sharing how much we enjoy philanthropy <coughs> and uh, getting involved in these causes, you know, hopefully there's a broader sense and that's more typical uh, both in the U.S. and uh, around the world where there are people who are having success, whether it's in the tech industry or other areas, who who can also give back. We should
2: go if you guys want to. I know you want
3: to do a selfie and
1: everything, so we got to do that. Oh, sure, of course. Right <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well,
2: we're uh, done, I guess. Uh, did you have any – are you good – Yeah, I
3: loved you on that episode of
2: Frasier. Where (laughs) you—that's favorite show is Frasier. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, thank you so much. It was really great uh, getting even forty minutes with you. And and I hope uh, coming over. And I hope uh, that—is there anything we should see while we're here? Like, what's your favorite thing in Seattle that we should see before we leave?
1: well, you mentioned EMP. Uh, That's pretty good. You know, Pioneer Square is kind of our historic center. Uh, This whole area is getting a lot of uh, biotech. Uh, yeah. Stop. Paul Allen's been involved uh, in developing. It's pretty cool. He's got his Brain Institute uh, down here, but it's not that visual, uh, yeah. actually.
2: Dean uh, car. Emerald City Guitars is over there. We can Do it. you miss grunge? Do you miss grunge, Bill?
1: <laughs> oh I was never that big. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did, didn't fit my <laughs> nerd image. <in> <laughs>
2: I hope you enjoyed the Bill Gates chat. And now moving ahead, as I promised in the intro, um, here's Jay Wenger, who is an epidemiologist and leading the charge to eradicate
3: polio, Kyle good
2: no he's eradicating polio kyle it's a specific strain of polio. oh god it has yeah. my name on it well you're not a person you're a strain of a of, of polio um,
3: like i'm in osmosis
2: jones yeah you are oh my god why would you reference <laughs> that, that beloved bill murray film all right let's uh let's cut out of this before it uh, gets stranger and more esoteric here's jay wenger epidemiologist for the bill and melinda gates foundation and julie sunderland uh who handles the investment funds <laughs> jay
3: please sit yeah. okay
4: we'll do get comfortable
2: in this a strange living room in the middle of your <laughs> office building. <laughs> nice. yeah. I like that this. I haven't really tooled around the office a whole lot yet, mm-hmm. but I see a lot of like, uh, we've seen a bunch of focus rooms. Yes. To focus. Yes. It's hard to focus on which one to go to. You don't know. It's like, you need a focus room to figure out right. which focus room. Right. You need a pre focus room.
1: It's distracting as um. well. Is. is there a
2: distraction room? <laughs> no, not, no, no. not no, one distraction no. room. It's just on the internet, that's your distraction yeah. room. Well, it's, but, well, you know, there's some buildings that you go in and, and and you really get the sense like, oh, they just needed space, so they just put a desk there. But here, you really get the sense like someone really thought there needed to be five focus rooms on this wall and then a dry <laughs> erase board on this one. And this had to face this way. You can feel... Somebody, somebody did that. <laughs> you can feel the planning. <laughs> but you would hope, I mean, like you would hope with what you guys are doing and what you're up against and what you're trying to solve you would hope that the building that is your home would have some planning so that you then yeah. could go do some right. some planning. So uh, just uh, th- tell us briefly, you know, what your what your role is here and and then we'll we'll kind of branch off from there. I know you worked in epidemiology. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, so is that yeah.
2: is that your primary focus here at the foundation? Yeah,
4: uh, I was an epidemiologist with the Centers for Disease Control and also WHO. For about 25 years before I came here. But here I'm director of the polio program. And a lot of people work on polio in the foundation. I, I have a small group which is uh, primarily focused on making sure that uh, we use the current tools that we have. In country to get rid of disease. Yeah, uh, there are other groups in the foundation that work on different things. So we have communication folks who do this. We have uh, people who work on upstream research, looking, trying to develop new, better vaccines to help us finish the job even faster, and and finish it off at the end. Uh, but I'm primarily in charge of the group that, that does the uh, directs the in-country work and the application of uh, of uh, interaction with the, the global program to finish off polio
2: so how do you uh how do you let me just make sure that we're make sure that we're recording level is good because we're
1: in a different room okay um
2: and then can someone close the door yes. thanks um when you're up against a, a disease any disease let polio now because that's the one that's relevant or or, or in general do you see it as a? Do you see it as an enemy, or do you see it as something like, no, we need to understand this so we can just control it better? Like, what's your philosophy up against uh, a disease?
4: Well, the, the polio story is is a little. Every infection is different, but the polio virus has a, a, a interesting history in that it started to cause outbreaks of, of disease, and polio is a bad disease. You, it's a virus. It only infects humans, so uh, it can't reproduce anywhere else. So to, to continue to have polio in the world, you have to have the virus uh, uh, getting, uh, continuing to reinfect new people. Right. It, it'll go into a person, you swallow it, it reproduces in your gut. Uh, a person's immune system will get rid of it in four to six weeks. And during that time, uh, the virus basically has to get excreted, and then somebody else, some other little kid usually, has to swallow water or, or, or eat something that has poliovirus on it, and then they get infected, and that cycle just keeps on going and going and going. Now, just a, a very small percentage of people who get the virus in them actually get paralyzed, it's like less than 1%, but, but maybe one out of 200 kids who actually get infected will get paralyzed. But when the paralysis happens, it can be very bad. It can do everything from paralyze your, your lung muscles, in which case you die, mm-hmm. unless you have supportive care. And, and in the, there are these great pictures from the 1950s in the United States with entire gymnasiums filled with iron lungs, oh basically God. respirators, where they would put kids who, who couldn't breathe anymore in them and breathe for them until sometimes they get a little bit better and strong enough to breathe, and sometimes they just remain in the iron lungs, essentially forever until they died. Yes. That's sort of the worst case analysis. But the other kind of paralysis, which is more common, is is when uh, the virus would strike nerves that, that do the leg or do the arm. And in that case, you get permanent paralysis of that limb. Was it that FDR? That's FDR. Right. FDR is a classic example right. of that. He actually got it when he was an older, older guy, like in his, uh, I think, late 30s or something. But uh, yeah, he ended up with, with two paralyzed legs and could never walk after that, and uh, became a big proponent of the March of dimes that, that actually started to raise money to, to do something about it. But after all that <clears throat> happened, um, it, it was becoming a huge deal in the United States, so that in the '50s, if you in the summertime in the fall, parents were scared to let their kids go swimming. And scared to to go to movies uh, with their kids it, because anytime you the theory was anytime you got a bunch of people together or, you, or had infected water, you could get disease and it, it reached really a, almost a panic level. Uh, a couple of vaccines were developed during that time, which could protect kids from disease. And we found out that it could you could even do one step better. You if you use the vaccines right, you could immunize enough kids so that that virus would not find another kid to infect. Oh, interesting. And so then you could actually have an entire population where the virus was not anymore. Uh, Essentially, the virus died out like the dinosaurs in that area. So uh, that happened in the United States first, and then a couple of countries in in the developing world started to use the vaccines the right way. And in South America, they got rid of all of the disease that they had there too. So we had a whole piece of the world that was polio-free. And based on that experience, um, the World Health Assembly declared that we should eradicate polio from the world. And every country in the world signed on in 1988 to get rid of, to do enough vaccination to get rid of that virus in their country. And that's the global polio program. It uh, started with WHO and UNICEF and Rotary and CDC uh, getting together and, and promoting this thing. And it went along pretty well uh, using, the, using these key vaccines to get the job done. So about the, in the 2000s, uh, we got stuck in about in a couple of countries. And these were places where populations of kids were either very poor and very crowded with no sanitation, so <clears throat> the virus really spun around and could really easily infect people, or places where people didn't really want to go, sure. uh, like places where they were having civil wars. Sure. And So we got stuck in India, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And those are the places where the virus is still there the virus was spinning around in those places had been eliminated from everywhere else in the world. But occasionally, because people have the virus in their gut, and if you get a traveler that can go anywhere now with planes, uh, you would occasionally get reinfection with the virus in other countries. And so those countries presented a threat to the world. And until we finished in those countries, we wouldn't make it. And for a couple of years, we were stuck. It was very hard to get it done there, but through a number of innovations and, and hard work with the countries and the partners, uh, India had its last case in 2011, and right now we've gone six months in the entire continent of Africa where there's been not a single polio case reported. So that's been a huge breakthrough, and we're looking now to focus on that last chunk in, Af- in the Afghanistan-Pakistan bloc, uh, if we can get rid of it there. The world is polio free.
2: Now, how so, do you? How do you? Uh, you know, d- does part of epidemiology deal with the politics or even the social politics? Of like, just hearing you say, well, people panicked and they did that. Like, you, mm-hmm. people start panicking or, or they don't really understand how something is spread and they start making bad decisions because yeah. they just yeah. don't have enough information. Mm-hmm. Do you partially deal with that too?
4: Yeah, it's a huge. Uh the last stages of polio eradication have really been an exercise in not just the science and the epidemiology of what's going on with the virus, but how to deal with countries and, and especially and populations that are, that are moving, and they're usually moving because there's, there's a problem, sure. refugee pot kind of populations. Or countries where um, uh, the, social, the civil situation is, is a big mess, uh, and there are either civil wars, or there is so much terrorist activity that people are afraid to go in and vaccinate kids. So those are the, the, those are the last frontiers, the last holdouts of the polio virus are really in places where uh, nobody can, nobody really wants to go, and it's very difficult to deliver vaccines that kids everywhere really should have. So that
2: makes it basically just these are
4: things that get in the way of you just when you're like, hey, we're
2: just trying to fix problems in the world. Can we just mm-hmm. get rid of the
4: roadblocks? Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, there are, there are a lot of... Um, yeah, it gets very tricky because, uh, in contrast, I, I mentioned in, in the 50s there was polio everywhere in the United States and people already worked about, up about it. Now the program has been so successful that there's essentially hardly any polio in the world anymore. We used to have hundreds of thousands of paralysis cases a year and and uh, and people were scared of it. Now, even in these countries where we still have the polio virus, even in Afghanistan and Pakistan, there are only... A couple of hundred cases, so it's it's hard to get, you know, the the, the the population concern about about it is a little bit reduced, especially with all the other problems that they have in these places. Yeah, but you know, it's so crazy because you're not
2: just trying to, you're not just trying to attack a virus. You're trying
4: to change people's behavior patterns. Sure. Yeah, that's right. Well, it, well, we are to an extent. That's right. It's it's tricky to get. Uh, I, I think this gets really broader what we 're trying to do is is deliver something to every kid, no matter how poor they are or how how distant they are from from a real a city and, and uh, even if no one cares about this these particular people we 're trying to get this this uh, uh, health intervention there uh, to every kid so it 's really a sort of a huge equity. Issue that we're working on, and, and uh, what we're doing now is trying to ensure that when we go to these places, we not only give them give polio vaccine, but we do other stuff too, other health health interventions, vitamins, nutrition, other vaccines, and so that is a that in some ways we are trying to uh, uh, change the way people think about what's what's available and what kids everywhere should have. So just
2: cuz I don't obviously not really ever having talked with an epidemiologist before what's day one is it like CSI or you're going to go okay here's the enemy and, and like what what do you when when you first come in and you know that you know you're up against polio yeah
3: and then are you worried that if you do a great job, you no longer have a job? Well, no, because there's no. <laughs> there, it's not like. There's, there's always diseases. There's the world. always other diseases. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's like, it'd be, I'm sure it would be great to, like, to do list, polio, check. Like, yeah. what, a great, what a great thing to check out for the day. But so I just yeah. I want to try to understand, you know, uh, how you come in, what information you gather, how you start trying to understand it, and
4: then how you start trying to figure out how to fight it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. I, I think, and it's and some of that stuff is the same for any infectious disease that you have. So, if we see a case of polio, looking at outbreaks is a classic thing that epidemiologists do. And so, we had a case uh, disease happened in Syria actually just last year. Uh, case Syria hadn't had a case of polio for a decade. They used to have a, a pretty good immunization system where 95% of kids got all the vaccines they ever needed. But, of course, Syria in the last two or three years has been – had a lot of problems. And the immunization system fell apart. So kids born in the last two years were – hadn't been vaccinated at all. We got a case of, 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 of uh, a kid with paralysis came into a hospital there. They cultured the stool. And uh, the sample turned out it was, it was poliovirus. And so we say, Oi, yi, yi, what, what happened there? What, why are we getting poliovirus here? And so the epidemiologist is basically looking and saying, why is this disease happening here? What is it about this population that's different from, from the other ones? And what we found in Syria was the big deal was that no kid less than two had been vaccinated pretty much for anything in the last two years because the immunization system totally fell apart due to this civil disturbance. The other question it always is, well, yeah, but where did the disease come from? How is this? We hadn't had a case in Syria for 10 years. Is this something that, was it actually always there and we just didn't find it? Or or what happened? And so what we do with each of these viruses, each poliovirus that gets isolated from anywhere in the world, goes to the lab, uh, and there is an international network of these things, and they, they sequence the virus, and they, they look and see, okay, what's the, where what, what are the genetics of this thing? And then they track it, they look back at the, at the bank of gene sequences from all the polioviruses that have ever been isolated in the world, which is somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, and you can track and see who is that poliovirus's mother and father. And we found that that poliovirus in Syria actually came from Pakistan, which made a lot of sense because Pakistan, we knew, was having disease, and that was one place that was churning around, and apparently some traveler at some point had transmitted in there. And that was helpful for us because it showed that, no, this wasn't some, ridic- some really bad situation where poliovirus had, had been there and had never been stopped. But this was a new importation into a place that had just recently developed a bunch of kids who were really susceptible. So, I mean, an epidemiologist, the epidemiologists work in this thing is basically to say, okay, when a virus happens, when a disease, a case of disease happens, why is it happening, how did it get there, and why did these people get it as opposed to other people. Once you know that, you can go in there and fix it. But how do you now, get that information? Where, do you, where are you getting that information from? Well, we get it from, uh, from surveillance data, and, uh, and surveillance is important. Every country in the world, as I said, signed on back in 1988 to, to get rid of polio. Part of that deal is that every country in the world has some system where they're actually looking in their population for polio cases. The way that works in most countries in the world, including Syria, is that um, uh, healthcare people, even you know, quack doctors, and anybody who takes care of a kid uh, is, is a part of the system, and they get notified that if they see a kid with paralysis, the one thing they need to do is get a stool sample, actually get two stool samples over uh, over a, a two week period, and make sure that stool sample gets sent up the line to the labs. And so they do that, even in places, incredibly, even in places like that are sort of basket cases in terms of organization, like Somalia or South Sudan. They have systems where if there's a paralyzed kid, a couple of stool samples get get grown up, and they send it up the line to the lab, they'll send it to the capital, and the capital will send it to some other lab who can actually do something with it. They'll culture it, and culture it for polio virus. And from that, that's the system that is in gear all the So they the have place. to be looking out for it. It's they not- have to be looking out for it. Well, you, the other way, if they weren't looking out for it at all, you would eventually get overwhelmed. You, you would eventually get developed so many, you would get all these people with paralysis coming in, and right. somebody would think, hmm must be something going on here. Give me an epidemiologist. So, but the system we have is better than that. You know, we, The system we have is something that works routinely, and we have to work at it to keep it going, because, again, in a lot of these places that you haven't seen a polio case in 10 years, you're, your interest in getting those stool samples sort of shrivels a little bit. But, but uh, So it's a constant uh, sort of uh, cultivation of the system to make it work.
2: Are you an hypochondriac? <laughs> I mean, I would just no. wonder, I would, just like, yeah. it, it, I would imagine that this is a field where most people would be like, yeah, I'm not a hypochondriac, and then working in epidemiology, like,
4: oh shit, everything's going to kill me, uh, everything spreads easily, <laughs> like, it doesn't, you ever worry about that stuff? Well, you know, I, not so much. I, I think, uh, it's funny, yeah, I'm infectious disease, <laughs> trained originally <as> an infectious <laughs> disease guy, epidemiologist, you'd think that. I actually don't worry, for me personally, I don't worry about that much, but it was true. With my kids, uh, every time my kids got a fever, I was working on meningitis, which is a different disease back at CDC. It's an infection of the brain. And it it's a swelling of the meninges, bad. right? A swelling of meninges yeah. and, and the high fatality rate. Every time my kid got the flu or a fever, I was sure they had meningitis. Oh,
2: no. <laughs> I haven't checked. That's them. right. So you, that's a, because they're your kids. <laughs> that's right. They're so my you kids. Were, they you're, were, you're in a lab. Right. You're working with these infectious diseases. Right. And you're like, yeah. no, my yeah. kid probably somehow got yeah, meningitis. that would be very bad. Yeah. Great thing.
4: so thing. but... but Really
2: and like and so, uh, so when something like Ebola happens, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone, and it becomes basically the. The headline that everyone's talking about, and then there's there's widespread panic. Oh my god, Ebola! When yeah. you know, realistically, the percentage of a chance that someone in, in at least in this country mm-hmm. that all of a sudden Ebola would become uh you know an epidemic, a, a huge is deal. pretty yeah. low. You I would hope. imagine mm-hmm. because of all the protocols that are in place.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Were, you know, were people right to freak out so much, or you know, or or was it yeah. was it just
4: like no, that's really not a huge problem. Well, I think, you know, the Ebola thing is really unfortunate. Ebola, of course, is, again, a really bad disease. Right. And um, uh, Mm a huge case fatality rate and difficult to care for the patients once they get sick. Uh, But it is like a lot of infectious diseases. We do know something about it, and we do know how it spread from previous studies and epidemiologists and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And so um, I think that the The issue was a uh, with Ebola it was not so much that we didn't know what to do. it was more an issue of implement implementing the control methods in the places where it was happening and mm-hmm. and those the countries that it that it erupted in in uh, in West Africa were unfortunate in that their their general health care systems were were so um uh, suboptimal uh that they couldn't really rise to the occasion in, in the right way. And I think that, uh, so the, the Ebola thing did become a huge, a huge issue, uh, not as much because we didn't know uh, the science of it as much as because it was just very difficult to implement the, the control mechanisms in the places that it happened.
2: But do you think people's response to it was, did not match what the actual threat level was? Yeah. Is there an acceptable or even healthy amount of panic when you're dealing with something like this? You're like, well yeah, people are more freaked out. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to make stupid decisions or is it just not helpful? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, I think that that um, clearly, as I said, Ebola is a bad disease. Sure. Anytime it happens, you know, it 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 needs to get ratcheted up to a to a major level of concern and and, and key actions have to take place and I think that um, not all the time everything happens quickly enough
2: right what's your biggest challenge with with your work like what are, what's the biggest hurdle
4: mm-hmm. with the polio program with at this point program. you know I think that um, as I said we've seen a lot of progress in, in just the last year or two um, uh, getting the uh, political will getting the partners together and in each country we're, we're we're working in in polio. It's it's the way the work gets done. Is the government of the country is is bought into it, and then the local development partners, whether it's WHO or UNICEF or the, the DFID or USAID, all those folks uh, have to get coordinated to actually get the job done. And in in these places where there are multiple multiple uh, problems, like poor routine immunization systems, uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, bad logistics, you know, all that kind of stuff. There are a lot of problems to take care of, and, and um, I think our our uh, our major problem right now is is uh, a common one to the polio program. It's just getting all of those systems to work together to get a to get. Uh, uh, a complete immunization of the of the population at risk, and that takes a lot of it takes a lot of coordination, and it takes a lot of determination, especially when you're facing things like like uh, uh, civil civil disturbances and civil wars.
2: Well, th- you know, because with, with polio, obviously, everyone came together to mm. create this this community of people go, hey, we're yeah. actually going to fight it. So I think most people go, oh, why wouldn't you just do that for every, di-? you know, like why, why mm-hmm. specifically polio and why not? Is it just a question of
4: resources and mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. how, how does it? Yeah. Well, the decision to eradicate a disease is, is a, as a, is not a totally easy one. Not all infectious diseases can be eradicated. Uh, polio is a is a good candidate for that because, as I said, it only infects humans. So that means that all all you have to do right, right <laughs> is vaccinate every kid in the world. You're not right? done yet, <laughs> and then and then you're finished. But uh, but most infectious diseases are not like that. A lot of infectious diseases have other reservoirs, like tetanus, for example, which is another vaccine we another disease we we. Uh, Vaccinate for it lives in the ground, and it lives in the ground for a really long time. And there's no way you can really get rid of it in the ground. Yeah, Uh, it's always there. So some diseases are just plain old not eradicable, Mm -hmm. and other infections that maybe might be theoretically eradicable, meaning that they're they're not they don't infect every living thing in the world, and you don't have to sterilize the planet to do it. Uh, We just we are still working on the tools Mm -hmm. to see what you know. Maybe we don't have a vaccine that works. Well enough to actually get the job done, or, or we don't have the right, uh, we don't actually have the the uh, the uh, medicines or vaccines to kill it off. So there's there's a lot of issues. Uh, there are some other potential diseases that could be eradicated, but I think that uh, but it's it's a, a little bit of a trade-off because between how difficult it would be to do that and and how much we want to work on other things. The um, the uh, one of the things um, both the difficulties in eradicating polio and even the Ebola thing highlight uh, have been that a lot of countries still don't have just the basic medical the basic system to give most people medical care and uh, that is a big deal uh, you know getting everybody up to a level of of health care and and nutrition that is uh, that will uh, address a wide range of problems is is really an, another another area of work that the foundation is putting a lot of a lot of input into right now increasing the primary health care system uh, eff- effectiveness and capacity and and general health health care uh, uh, yeah the ability to give give health care to people in the world is, is another uh, uh, another way to approach a lot of a lot of disease issues.
2: What's your favorite part of your job?
4: What do you like the most? Like, what do you do and go, yes, this is,
2: this is what I want. This is what I want
4: to do. Well, I mean, you know, it, I mean, the idea of saying, okay, here's an infection and we can actually get rid of it and we can actually cause a, a change in the ecology of the world that will get rid of this disease is great. When, when I see, well, like, we've gone now to... You know, haven't had a case in Nigeria, a case of wild polio virus, since July of last year. And that's the, that's never been done before. It looks to us like the virus is completely gone from the continent of Africa. To have to have caused a change like that, to say, okay, we really have an entire huge chunk of the world where this virus is not there. What we've done is, is use a tool, use a vaccine to actually cause something to happen that is saving Kids' lives and making sure that nobody's going to get paralyzed from polio there again. That's a great. That's a great thing. And the, uh, you know, the the, the uh, effort that goes through to do that is not really just our effort. We only play a, a part of it. And when I was in India for five years working on the polio program there, and and uh, we would part of the program is to do national immunization dates to to try to identify every kid less than five and make sure they get they get their vaccine in like a one week period. Now in India, every kid under five is 170 million kids right. spread over the entire country. And so we had teams of vaccinators and each team was like a mother and a father and then somebody carrying the vaccine thing, going to essentially every house in India, knocking on the door and seeing if there was a kid less than five there. And if there was, they'd put two drops of vaccine in their mouth. That, that thing, to organize that on a national level to vaccinate 170 million kids is just a huge undertaking. Well, yeah, and someone
2: knocked on my door and said, "Hey, can I put
4: a droplet in your kid's mouth?" Be like, "Leave." <laughs> well, that happens, and that's that's one of the challenges. But but to be able to to manage that, to do that in places that are just incredibly difficult, and then to have it work, as in Africa or as in India, is is great. It, that if if there was an exciting thing that uh, that uh, to be a part of, I mean, that's that's it really to see that you've actually. Contributed to getting rid of a disease.
2: And how long is it? How long does it have to be gone for you to say, like, all right, well, we've eradicated it? Yeah. Is, yeah. It, is it two years, five years, ten years?
4: Well, again, what we—the actual plan—and this is based on assessments of how good that surveillance system is that I talked to you about. Right. Uh, uh, but um, the, the plan is, after the last case, we want to follow it for three years. Uh, we want to watch for three years, and we don't declare it done until three years, three years after the last case. So okay. if we get to the last case in 2015, we won't declare it done, 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 until 2018. But during that time, it's not like we haven't done anything. During that time, basically, no kids are getting paralyzed by polio. So it's, it's essentially we would declare in 2018 that 2015 was the, was the eradication date. So I'm sure you are a Walking Dead fan.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, right? Uh, well, you're sure. Yes. You've seen. You're just like. Don't imagine, do you, can you watch a zombie show? And and does, as an epidemiologist, so you like, are you just seeing glaring mistakes that characters are making? Like, don't drink the damn water. Like, you must be. <laughs> That's where it's spreading. You know, or whatever. Do you watch? Are you able to? Are you ever watch outbreak shows or no? Movies yeah, and, I do.
4: No. Yeah. I mean. uh I do. I, I think, I shouldn't say this, I guess, but zombie shows are always particularly bother me a little bit because I can't, I have a hard time making that jump from. This is what I know in science can happen, right? And then I got those zombies there,
3: right? I, can't, I, just, can't. I just can't make that job. That's
4: why it's so terrifying. No, right? It is terrifying. Yeah, That's it is why it's so terrifying. scary because they don't know. I can't think of a body system that could actually work that way. Okay, <laughs> I, the, way, the way zombies do. But it's comforting that you think that. Putting <laughs> putting that aside, you know, I, you know, I, I do think I, I am. It, it is interesting to see the outbreak movies because I think that they. Uh, they do. Sometimes there are glaring errors that are made, and other times it's just it's just oversimplified. Like Twenty Eight Days Later is a great outbreak movie. If
2: you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So is that when you watch that you go, "Well, that's never going to happen." Like it's never. You know, there's not going to be something that's so pandemic that it basically the, uh, every government falls and the world is in chaos. Like it's what yeah. science was. Yeah. We're always a step ahead.
4: Well, yeah. Um.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs>
1: well, make true. me feel better please no,
4: that's true I, I think oh, well there, there are two things I would say about that one is that you know it's a bad idea for a virus to kill everything it infects I mean because there's no more hosts well, that's right, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, so that would be a bad thing to do uh, but I think that um, you know. I just look back historically, and and if we think, okay, there have been humans on the world for a long time, right? And and even even his, in historic time, what has happened? I mean, you know, probably the worst thing that's happened, not uh, uh, the worst thing, the Black Plague, right? Was pretty bad. Yeah, it was not. Yeah, that was that was a bad thing, and and there, you know, you saw a third of Europe die off in a. Gone in a, in a swath, and that was pretty grim, uh, but even there um, uh, you know there was enough variation <laughs> enough genetic variation both in us and in the vi- and in the bacteria probably that that you know it didn 't get everybody i mean I think that that what we have now is and what you do see in these movies is we do have the capacity to relatively rapidly partly because of epidemiologists but also because of the guys in the lab sure who are doing stuff to sort of assess pretty rapidly what's going on and assess how it's being spread and uh there are we we certainly are in a much better situation than we were back in the 1300s well, I don't, to, to address
2: these things. I don't know what you think you're going to do if a pissed-off monkey breaks through a cage and bites you in the face. Then like, then yeah, that's wh- a, bad, that's then a bad scene. Then. That's a very bad yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what can, just as we're sort of wrapping up, uh, what can uh, what can people do? Like, is there anything the general public can do to help you do your job or to help, you know, uh, science in general try to eradicate widespread disease?
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I think for the polio thing, it's, it's very important... Um, that uh, we finish this job. I mean, it's easy in the United States. Now, nobody, you talk to, well, if anybody knows what polio is, you know, you talk to some people say, oh, isn't I gone? Well, yes, of course, it is gone in the United States, but it's not gone in the world. And I think I think the, big, the most important thing we could look for support with is is just the recognition and the affirmation that we can beat this disease, we can eradicate it, but we have to finish the job. Mm-hmm. And, and continuing to put pressure and support the final efforts to finish it off. Because if, you know, if we don't finish it off everywhere, it's just going to come back. right? You know, it, 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 but if we do finish it off in, in the last places where it is, then we're home free. And, and then, we, then no kid anywhere is going to have to worry about getting paralyzed from polio virus. And that is – that's what we're really shooting for. But I think that that what – we can't sort of drop the ball in the last yard. You know, that – and and in some ways, you know, when you have a disease that's gone from 99% of the world, uh, and then 99% of the world thinks, eh. Well, and that's a problem
2: because then the media, like people in the media – I'm sure that must play a huge role in you know like headline news because everyone will go okay now this is the for lack of a better term sexy new disease that everyone's yeah, freaked out yeah. about and they forget about the one that they yeah. didn't finish before yeah. and it's not getting attention which means it's not getting as much funding which means it's not getting as much you know the resources and
4: time devoted to it right yeah that's the problem and and people or people will sometimes complain They say oh look we're still putting all this money into polio nobody gets it anymore. Yeah, right. But the reason that nobody's getting it right. is cuz we're putting a and lot We don't money want them to, to start getting and, it. And 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 if and this is our window of opportunity right here, if we can we can just make that extra push and finish it, then we can turn the money off. Sure. You know, but but until we finish it, we can't. We have to protect we still have to protect the world as long as there's some place that's generating poliovirus. So, so, last, so that's that's the biggest issue. Last last question, uh
2: what's is there, is there a disease in the world? Is there something in the world where you're like, oh, but that's really scary? Like, is there one that really sort of <laughs> freaks you out? Like, if it's in a lab where you're like, I don't really want to go in that lab. I'll put on two hazmat suits and I'll look at it from behind glasses. Is, <laughs> is there anything that's that's really, uh, that's truly horrifying? Or, or do you have a pretty even,
4: appro- even emotional approach to, to every disease? You know, I mean, there are... There are diseases that are scarier than other diseases and more more acutely threatening. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I actually think, as you know, in, in context of what I said before, that we do have the capacity now to evaluate these things and look, you, and and assess the risk and actually take steps against most of them uh, that we can sort of see. You can imagine difficult. Combinations, sure. uh, you know, but but uh, no, I, I don't think there's a disease. I'm do diseases like, do, do they have I'm not do different favorites? I'm not
2: favorites. Do different diseases have different personalities in, in in a in a way where you where you go? Well, they there do seem to be you know certain behavior patterns that they express. Now, I'm not saying mm-hmm. that they have. Mm-hmm. A consciousness, but I just yeah, mean, yeah, like, yeah. are there certain per, are there, there are certain personality traits where you would go, oh, well, polio tends to like this, and something else tends to like... Like, can you predict their behavior patterns?
4: Sure, there are. I mean, I mean, polio is an enterovirus. It lives in the gut. It loves sewage. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's going to be there. So, you know, I could... I sort how of long think, does polio survive outside of the body? Uh, that's a good question. The uh, It can survive... It, it, it depends. Uh-huh. And it depends a little bit on how much sunlight there is. What the temperature is, blah blah blah. But it's it's basically in in terms of hours to days to maybe a week or two if you're really in tough shape. That's why, that's why we can get rid of it um, uh, because it'll be in the human body for four to six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Da da da. And if it gets excreted, most of it will die within a couple of hours to a day or two, and then and then it will all be gone in a little bit unless it gets picked up by another human, you know. But but yeah, but but clearly uh, these viruses do have ways that they act so i sometimes i feel like i've been in enough places with polio to think well, if i go into a village i can sort of almost smell it no, yeah, yeah, really yeah smell. but i know what you mean i can't yeah. really smell it but I But oh, you yeah, have this an is, understanding
2: of what this the conditions is, this are this is a place yeah
4: yeah but they do i mean things act differently and that's but that's again what what that's a little bit what epidemiologists do in my in my previous life uh working at cdc we worked on uh, a disease called listeriosis, which is a bacteria, but that has its own way of acting. And that, there's a recent outbreak in, in caramelized apples. I don't know if you guys yeah. heard about that. You, know, you sure might have read, read about know. it in the paper. But that's a, that's a very different bacteria, and it's, it's a weird one because we know it can actually grow in the refrigerator. Unlike most most bacteria, you put them in the fridge. That's why you put them in the fridge, because it it's too cold, so bacteria don't grow. Listeria can grow in the fridge. It can actually reproduce there. So it's a, it's a disease that's often associated with cheeses and cold cuts and that kind of stuff. And, and so, yeah, that, that disease has a, a, a characteristic way that it acts. Polio has another characteristic way that it acts. And trying to figure out when you see something, when you see a case of disease, identifying what it is is key and then identifying who's got it and why they've got it is is the other is the next step in trying to control it.
2: This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. And and I hope that you do I hope that you're able to eradicate polio and then like uh cut to you next to David Caruso in like a CSI style opening where you're yeah. like
0: <laughs>
2: Polio's gone. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's yeah. great. Yeah. But uh thanks, Jay. It was really great talking to you, man. Thank you.
0: Sorry,
2: we're talking about polio for so long. I know polio so dance, fun. I mean, <laughs> you came in four times and we're sorry. Okay. <laughs> I know polio. it turns out it's very intense polio. Yeah. Polio is
0: intense. <laughs> Julie, thank I've you. I've had some fun on polio. You
2: <laughs> What do you so just could you please tell people specifically what it is? I mean, I have your bio here sure. so I see that you are the director of program-related investments for the for the Gates Foundation. Yes. but But what does that mean?
0: What does that mean? What is that? What is that? What are those words? Um, those words mean. So most of what the foundation does is grant making. We mm-hmm. do about $4 billion of grant making per year. But we have this secret pool that actually can do... Wait, don't tell anyone then. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 that can do equity investing mm-hmm. in companies. We can do loans. We can do guarantees. Uh, and so I manage the pool. It's a... billion investment pool that actually invests in companies, in uh, investment funds, in partnerships to advance our program goals Mm -hmm. in partnership with essentially private sector companies.
2: Right. And ultimately, what are your program goals?
0: Our program goals are eradicating polio or eradicating malaria or um, uh, increasing digital payment infrastructure around the world. So in places where we think that a partnership with a private company can advance those goals, then we'll go in and structure something really cool to create incentives for companies to focus on these problems. So
3: you're not necessarily doing it to generate more money, you're doing it to complete the goals.
0: Correct. So if you think about it, if we're trying to solve all these incredibly difficult problems, we need to get cool companies, we need to get entrepreneurs, we need to get innovation, we need all the skills that the private sector brings to bear. So you're not going to like
3: throw a ton of money at Snapchat? No, sorry. <laughs> unless, uh, you unless, unless you
0: can eradicate polio. Unless you can
3: eradicate yeah. polio. Vaccinate. Don't know. Yeah. Hey, there's polio over here. Don't come over here. Cool. Good to know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh wait, it just disappeared.
0: It just disappeared. The address is on there. I don't know.
2: I don't know. It's we'll Uh Well, you must have to make tough decisions then, based on because obviously there's there are um, an infinite number of. Causes in the world which require resources, and so how do you pick and choose? Like, how do you prioritize? Basically.
0: Well, you just spent a while with Jay Wenger, who's a brilliant man who knows more about. I don't know anything about polo, so the way that we. Bad news. It's bad. (laughs) Don't get (laughs) it. um so, we don't so I don't I manage an investment pool, but my investment pool is always deployed in partnership with our program team. So, I've got some sure. of the most brilliant people around the world. I often joke that I play a biotech investor on TV. I don't know anything about biotech, but I actually have a pretty big pool of biotech investments. How can I possibly do that? I'm smart enough to know that I don't actually know anything mm-hmm. about antibodies, <laughs> vaccines, I don't know this stuff. These are words, words. Um, but so what I do is I partner with these brilliant scientists and these brilliant p- policymakers who actually understand how we're going to solve these problems, and then we then partner with the companies to try to figure out how to use the resources that they bring to bear. So, so you basically,
2: really you basically, you're smart enough to look at people and go, "You're smart too. Uh-huh.
0: You fix that
2: thing, and uh-huh. here's the resources uh-huh. to go do that." Yeah.
0: One of the funny experiences when I first started this was I was sitting in a room with Chris Wilson, who's the head of our discovery, brilliant man, and he was talking and I had, and I realized that I didn't understand maybe half the words that are coming out of his mouth. But the really comforting thing is he only stood, understands half the words that are coming out of my mouth, but we sort of know each other and we know that he's brilliant on scientific things. I may not be brilliant on finance things, but he thinks I am. So it all kind of works.
2: (laughs) And so what are your biggest challenges right now? Well, like, because it, I think I think the general I think the way most people think about money is wrong, mm-hmm. in in the sense that they go uh, oh, you just throw money at it and it, somehow it's a genie then just magically it solves itself. Mm-hmm.
0: But we call that magical finance. <laughs>
2: magical, but 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 money needs uh, you know it needs an infrastructure and it needs someone figuring out how to distribute it evenly and distribute it pop- properly. And and so so what, what are the challenges with that?
0: It's actually really hard. Um, So it sounds really exciting. Everybody, oh, you have such a cool job. It's actually really hard for that reason, meaning money's not the problem. The problem is how do we create, I mean, we're very simple creatures. We respond to incentives. Uh, And the private sector is designed to respond to some pretty simple incentives. Profit for investors, profitability for companies, you know, it's Capitalism works because it's a pretty simple incentive system. What we're doing is we're introducing a different kind of incentive. We're basically saying we want to use all the good things that you have around manufacturing capability and innovation, and we want to apply it to something that's not driven by that sort of simple profit incentive. So I think that my job, and I think it's a skill that we've developed, I don't think we're Um, you know, we've finished developing that skill. It's really how do I create the right incentives with these companies to focus on these problems? And we can use a bunch of different things. We can use money. We can throw money at the problem. We can use, you know, partnership, meaning we're bringing skills and knowledge about these markets that they may not have. You know, the foundation has an incredible network of, of, of people and knowledge that we can also bring to bear. So what we're really looking for is those partnerships where it's good for the company, they can build a business off of it, and it's good for us in that... Their skills and their capabilities are being brought to bear in a really constructive way, not forcing them to do it or not having to throw money at them, but in a way where those incentives are aligned uh, to to get things done. And how do you do that?
2: I mean, how do you how do you make people understand? You know, this is. This is the most effective way to filter this money through the system in order to achieve the goal.
0: Yeah. So we use some, everybody in the development world, they call this innovative finance. And what I say is it's actually not that innovative. It's really simple financial tools applied to areas that, um, that haven't had these financial tools. So let me give you an example. Um, we use a really simple tool in the health commodity market. So vaccines are really important to us. Um, contraceptive commodities are really important to us. And you've got great manufacturers out there producing these things, but what they don't have is certainty about the markets. They don't understand the donor environment. They don't understand what's going on in Africa. And so what we do is we come in and we say, listen, we're going to actually, we know what's going on. So in the contraceptive implant space, Melinda you know, made a big announcement. So we know there's a lot of money for family planning out there. We're going to guarantee you a volume. We're going to do a, a, a volume contract. And in exchange for that, in exchange for bringing something that you need—certainty about the market—we're actually going to lower. We're going to ask you to lower your prices, and so it's a win-win. They get guaranteed volume, they get a bigger business, and we get lower prices, which means we can use the same donor dollars to double the number of uh, people that can get access to these uh, vaccines or these contraceptive inputs.
2: How is it different than working in the private sector or working like a for-profit when you're trying to, you know, when you're working in a pool, a fund pool? <laughs> What are, what are some of the major differences? Or what did you learn when you came over?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was actually, um, I I come from an emerging market private equity background. So I ran around the world making investments in companies. And I sort of thought I was going to do something really similar there. You know, look at management teams, think about business models, you know, think about what are the great businesses. Um, it was kind of a re-education for me because I'm still doing that same thing. We still need to find the best entrepreneurs and the best investors. We need to do all the, hold ourselves accountable to that sort of the rigorous processes that investment funds go through. At the same time, I'm not, I got to shift my mindset. I have to think about how do I use investment tools to solve problems? And that's a, that was actually a surprisingly difficult shift to make because when you're in an investment mindset, you're, you're sort of programmed. You're, you're, you're a mouse on a wheel, or hamster on a wheel. You just go and you do the same thing. Um, and you're you programmed for the pattern recognition of great management teams, great business models. If you have to then shift and say that's not what I'm I, that's important, but it's not the core thing. The core thing is how do I use businesses to eradicate malaria? How do I engage with businesses to reach get as many contraceptives to poor women in these countries as I can? And it shifts your mindset. Wow. Uh,
2: and do you feel when 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 you were in the private sector before, mm-hmm. what were some of the what were some of the common mistakes that you would see? Like when you're analyzing a business structure. Mm-hmm. What do you see at the outset where you go, oh, they don't know what they're doing because of this and this? And it's like, what, what are some of the reasons that businesses fail?
0: I mean, in, the, in, the, in my old world, you know, business, business, especially in the emerging markets, you know, it's, it's a lot of people. It's management teams. It's, you know, can people get things done? So management talent is, is a key component, and it's something that we have to figure out how to bring over to our... And that's one of the reasons why we think this is such a powerful tool. So if we can get those... Great entrepreneurs that are focused on Snapchat. Which yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Is wonderful. I'm sure Snapchat is
2: wonderful. And I've heard about it. So I don't, you know, I don't know, I was about. I don't know about it. I know about
3: it. <laughs> so
0: I mean, there's so much creativity. I mean, there's so many great people going in, creating businesses, creating solutions that we can't even imagine. I think one of the things that's so exciting for us is how do we get that, you know, incredible. Talent to focus on our issues. Uh, and focus that's on humanity it. rather than just yeah. Like, and like, honestly, I think people do. I think people want to. I mean, I don't. My you know, of course, they want to get filthy rich. But I also think they want to benefit humanity, and that's the excitement about this. Again, it's hard. You have to create the right incentives. You have to.
2: Well, yeah, I think. Well, I think people don't ever think about what's the stage beyond filthy rich. Like, okay, you have a uh, hundred million dollars. Now what? You know, like yeah. now, what do you do with it? You know, cuz one thing that I never understand is what do people? You know, if someone has. million, well, it's not like they just have $100 million in a bank. What do you do with that money? Like, how do you you manage that? How do you – you're basically putting it in a lot of different things (laughs) – to diversify, I would imagine, to keep it safe. Or I, I don't even know how you approach fun that, that size is that big.
0: Oh, well, my $100 million that right. I manage, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, a, you know,
2: like, what, Where do you keep your honey? Boots, in your <laughs> it's in your boots? Yeah, it's in your boots. boots. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from your, like, looking at successful businesses, looking at failing businesses? <laughs> what, what sort of tools did you pick up before you came into this job that helped?
0: Um... You know, the thing about investments and the great investors, and I don't count myself in one of those, the great investors have instinctive pattern recognition. So it's that smell of what's going to work and what's going to not work. And that's probably the most important characteristic that I learned. I learned, you know, you can make all the right plans, but a coup in Cote d'Ivoire is going to completely undermine, you know, your the investment that you made in a great company. It's sort of so you got to have the smell of. For those types of things. It's not, it's not, there's not, you have to be able to be comfortable in working in ambiguous, sort of chaotic realities, which is what, you know, business. Businesses, business environments are organic places. You know, great entrepreneurs, great ideas emerge where you don't expect them to do. So it's really how do you find that pattern recognition to find the great people with the great ideas and really enable those people to do things. And we're trying to do something really similar here, um, but on, a, on some levels, a much grander scale. But if we can't get those sort of outliers, those great ideas, take risks on, on things that are really going to do uh, enable fundamental transformation in the markets in which we work, um, it's gonna be tough. The one thing I will say, um, one of my other learnings for emerging markets specifically that I don't think we necessarily get working in the U S or Europe is that it is incredibly difficult to, to grow businesses, to be an entrepreneur. Um, those business environments are so tough. And so, uh, I have a huge amount of respect for entrepreneurs and businesses in these markets, but I also know that without sort of fundamental transformation in the economics of how those markets work, it's really tough to have the kind of scale transformation that we're looking for. So, you know, one of the sectors that's super exciting to me right now is digital infrastructure, because what digital infrastructure does is it leapfrogs over physical infrastructure. So all the work that we're doing on mobile payments has the ability to to do a, really a fundamental transformation in reaching poor people. So, you know, if you think about banking, if you think about even building businesses that are focused on poor people, it's hard. You can't, you know, it's hard to reach them. It's, you know, to have a poor customer walk into a bank is really expensive for a bank, so they're not going to serve it without a fundamental change in the economics. Sure. Digital infrastructure allows us to change those economics. Right,
2: because then, then you can so you don't have to build a physical place and have people, you know, you can do it you can do it from here. Right.
0: And that's such an exciting potential transformation. So that's my, my learning is, one, being an entrepreneur is bloody hard. You need to have the pattern recognition to understand where you can put a great entrepreneur with a, with a company. But in these markets especially, sort of changing the economics of the underlying businesses, whether it's in ag value chains, whether it's in digital infrastructure and financial services, whether it's in healthcare delivery, that's going to really be the thing that changes the way our ability to reach millions and millions of people at scale.
2: Well, in, in, in terms of, you know, this sort of social entrepreneurship and then also in, in the private sector as well, you, I guess people really do have to understand not only what a good idea is, and then on top of that, are the people around it competent enough to execute it? But then outside of that is it something that people are, what's the adoption rate? Because you cannot predict what people, I mean, you can kind of go, well, people tend to like, or this is something that people might need, but you can't control. I mean, like there's so many things that, you know, it's not just whatever the sort of cultural zeitgeist is, but also, you know, are they ready for it? Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe they're not, maybe it's a couple years too early. Mm -hmm. So how do you even, how do you game that system?
0: You know, I think you have to have a really big appetite for failure, <laughs> which Bill does, which is one of the wonders of of working with him. Um, because the reality, you're absolutely right. It's so messy. There's so many different factors, and so you gotta be willing to go out and, you know, accept the fact that a lot of these things aren't going to work and and take bets. And that's one of the things that's built into our investment program. You know, we're very, very conscious of the risks that we're taking. We actually, you know, our core analytics is not around how much returns it's going to be. It's how much risk are we taking and are we we willing to take that risk in a way that's really clear-sighted and we're totally honest. We're totally transparent with Bill about the risk we're taking because I don't want him to come back and say, "You promised me." I right. want him to understand that hey, there's like a 75 percent likelihood that we're going to have to write off this investment, but it's worth doing, and it's worth doing because if it wins, if it's successful, it has such a great impact on populations. So well, we
2: there's like them. a there's a human currency. <laughs> there's a human currency, not just a, you know how many fat stacks can I uh, get back from this? It's like you're basically trying to
0: literally like improve humanity and when it works it's pretty amazing so we've got one investment that we uh, we, we've been working on for three years as a foundation we just did a a second round earlier this year Um, that's a digital payments company in Bangladesh and getting back to your comment about human you know the entrepreneur that runs this is unbelievable, Kamal Kadir, And he's actually it's the Khadir brothers in Bangladesh who are kind of famous. Uh, Iqbal Iqbal his older brother um founded and grew Grameen Phone, which is one of the biggest the first and biggest mobile money or mobile deployments twenty years ago in the developing world. So these serial entrepreneur brothers are out there and they figured out um, how to, cr- you know, create a mobile money uh, deployment that's that that worked, um, and so we invested uh, six million in grant money about three years ago, and another fifteen million last year, and they've gone in twenty-four months from zero to fifteen million customers, and it, it gets back to like, when we looked at if you looked at like the analysis we did, we're like, oh my god, this you know this is early stage. It's an unproven model, you know, never, you know, never been done before outside of Kenya. Like, this is crazy. There's so many political issues associated with it. It's like, Oh my, you know, this is, this is terrifying to put this much money in, but it worked. And the, and it worked because not because, I mean, Kamal and Iqbal are are brilliant, but customers want it. It's a customer use case. It makes sense for them transferring money over their cell phones, their cheap they're $7 cell phones that you can buy in, you know, a bazaar in Bangladesh via a text message, you can transfer money, you know, from Dhaka out into the rural areas back to their families, and it's under a penny uh, in order to do that versus they would have to pay to physically transfer that. And oh, right. they love it. The, the you know, people are just taking we don't even we don't even know how people are using this. Um, and it's one of those things where it all works. Now I can tell you I don't want to tell you about all the cases where it hasn't. That would make it look <laughs> bad. <laughs> but it's really beautiful when it does work. And, and be sorry to jump in here, but B cash has become like a cultural thing now too. You yeah. B cash money Bcash cash money. And it's uh, it's the name of the company. Yeah, it's the name that's, of the company. Sorry, I sorry. That, So they've actually
2: become so it's become like uh, what is that, metonymy or something where the word becomes the thing, like yeah. the brand name becomes like Kleenex. Yeah, exactly. Now it's
4: Bcash. You go
0: you literally you fly into Bcash and they have this beautiful magenta origami bird, and it's all over the city. And literally people will yeah, I'll be cash that. Oh wow. Yeah.
2: So if you're not Bcash, <laughs> it's a to- <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> But that's an interesting, I mean wow, just finding the opportunity for the right time like well oh, people were just ready for this now like the technology was available emotionally they were ready for it you know it was yeah. just it was just i mean these types of you know I think we've become so spoiled in our country in, in terms of innovation we become we're like we're like brats about innovation yeah. because you know because of what's happened in the last you know third forty years in terms of you know personal computing you know if if something it something doesn't get completely uh, uh, innovated in eighteen months or a year, like, oh, what's what's happening? Like, yeah, five years ago, you're already this much better off, you know, like why are we screwed because we're so
3: spoiled? I mean
0: in some ways, actually, <laughs> to be totally honest with you. I yeah. think America, I mean I, I spent a lot of time working in development I lived in Africa for a few years and we're spoiled. We don't we we're spoiled by innovation. You could say that negatively, but I think you also can say, hey, we live in an incredible time and if we can take that innovation capability and you know the good hearts of entrepreneurs, of innovators, you know you go to Stanford and Stanford Business School, we do some recruiting at Stanford Business School and you know I remember when I was in business school 20 years ago nobody had any interest in social sectors. You know it's all consulting um, and investment banking. Now you go into business schools, you go to Stanford Business School, and half the class, they they can't even fill the consulting slots because half the class is like, we want to go out and want to change the world. And I think that's a great thing. So I'm an optimist. Yeah, you can say Americans are spoiled, which we are. Um, But I also think that, you know, especially younger generations really care about making the world a better place. And I actually think that that's going to be the major factor, um, both in terms here, but also diaspora, like diaspora returnees into these markets. If you go into Nairobi right now, You've got some brilliant people coming back, thinking about how they take their skills that they, you know, that they built up working, you know, in the, the the developed world to the countries. And they're going to be an incredible force for innovation
1: and change.
2: And it's not even, I mean, I don't want to, it's, I don't mean to come down on America about it because I just think it's sort of a, I think it's kind of a human. I asked Bill about it too, is that, you know, is, uh, is, is convenience a bad thing because we're so addicted to convenience and innovation it's like oh we just need more and we're already you know you get one device and the next day you're already looking at all the blogs like what's the next iteration of the device going to be like why don't you just enjoy the one that you have that does a million things that you couldn't do two years ago you know (laughs) Uh, do you are are, is, is 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 convenience a problem or how do we how do we temper that like how do we is it perspective i mean you have perspective because you've like you said, you've lived in Africa. You've been around the world. You've seen you've seen outside the country, and you kind of understand, and you may be a little immune to it. So, how do you?
0: How do Americans get less spoiled? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> when you can figure out it, I'll tell my. I'll try to put it onto my my kids. I don't know. I Again, I'm a little bit like Bill. I'm kind of optimistic, um, and I believe. You know, first of all, one of the things that's really cool and really important is the degree to which innovation allows. So we have all this innovation happening and we get distracted by it, right? So, but when you have really great innovation that then leapfrogs in these markets, it's hugely beneficial. So let me just give you, I worked in Nigeria in 1998 when pre-cell phone, I was working for an investment fund and there were 300,000 landlines in Nigeria. So you go in, you fly into Nigeria, nobody could communicate. In order to communicate, you had to go to a hotel. It cost an unbelievable amount of money. It was just insane. And five years later, because of cell phone technology, which is you know American-based innovation, you've got you've got companies and they're printing money because the uptake again is not dissimilar from what we're seeing with the, with, with Bcash. Um, and you go in and you, Nigerians are some of the most entrepreneurial people i mean talk about attention deficit like they're the most entrepreneurial you know you give them anything to work with and they've got like the worst government system in the world and within that they manage to get things done because they're just these incredible entrepreneurial people and you go in and all my Nigerian friends have three cell phones and they're running five businesses because of cell phones so the, and i've said i want to at some point when i'm uh I have don't have as many things to do, go out and prove this, which is that the cell phone has had such an incredible impact on people's lives, their ability to generate income, their ability to form businesses, their ability to take care of their families. I think it's had more impact than 20 years of World Bank lending. So that's what we're looking for. So if Americans want to be bratty and um, entitled, but are going to innovate, I don't really care. I want them to take that. What I want to do is I want to have a great African entrepreneur take that bratty innovation and apply it and make the world Make it lives better for so many poor people.
2: Were you able to help out that Nigerian prince keep his eight hundred million dollars? <laughs> for... uh, yeah, that's
0: why I'm, I have a hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't make that investment. No, I just didn't. Yeah, I know. I got lazy.
2: I was yeah. going to, yeah, and then no, like Game of Thrones was on, and I just <laughs> and the boots. I got busy, <laughs> and that's
3: that's that's, <laughs> that's what afforded. What that was the secret? <laughs> <laughs> was the
2: there's secret? a real guy.
3: Yeah. You know, there's there's a couple Nigerian princes who just really need your help exactly. getting the money out. No
2: and
0: one will respond to me.
2: What do you think is the most important innovation <laughs> of the last 20 years?
0: Uh, I mean, again, I'm biased because I saw it Seinfeld. and I invested in it. It's, it's cell. Cell phone, yeah. yeah. But... I mean, you could say internet, but I... And, you know, obviously people would... Uh, information-based communication.
2: Yeah. A lot of episodes of Seinfeld would have been
3: much shorter if they were cell phones. <laughs> 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 or if someone said, "I think you misunderstand what
0: I meant." <laughs> you know, there's an anecdote that um, from um, I spent way too much time in hotels in cities in Africa, um, and I was having a drink with the Diageo rep at one point, and he talked about the fact because I own Diageo owns um, breweries all, and breweries are very successful business all over Africa, and he said that when cell phones came in. Their revenues went down because people made the choice. People trade off between drinking and talking to their
2: friends. Really? <laughs> well, I guess in a way, drinking is a form of they're like they're socializing. A lot of people are socializing, so if I they can talk do- to your friends without having some drinks, yeah, I don't know. If you,
0: if you, really <laughs> import, you actually have to trade it off. <laughs> do you talk to your friends? You actually have to. Proud of being American. Get to know (laughs) My point being that cell phones were really transformative in these markets. They've been incredible. And that's why the digital infrastructure stuff is so interesting, because we're we're taking it to another level. And if you think about the businesses that can be enabled by being able to transfer money over the cellular infrastructure, it's incredible if you start thinking. And you start thinking about information systems. If you start thinking about health data and what we could do with health data. If you start thinking about... Consumer data and what we could do with consumer data in these markets. Like, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go. But I know that what it's done is it's dramatically lowered the transaction costs to working with the poor. And that's one of the biggest inhibitions for companies to be successful.
2: Well, it's, what, what I think the point, when I was earlier sort of sort of saying, like, oh, we're addicted to innovation, we're addicted to innovation. But, you know, in a country like India, so now uh, V-cash now, well, now they've done it. Like, they were, it's now, it it's difficult to then, like, well, what's their next innovation going to be? Because now everyone has a phone, and now everyone has you know the ability to to trade cash digitally. So, you know, like looking ahead, what do you what do you think some of the next innovations are? What what are some hurdles that we have to to overcome?
0: Yeah, I'll will give you an example of that because I think it's actually a really interesting question. So, we're not invested in this this company. I think Bill is as an individual because we don't do international education. But there's this really great um, great company, Bridge International, that does essentially. Um, franchise education—it's like education in a box—and um, a lot of people have invested in them. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're they have an incredibly low-cost model for for education, and it's been enabled. And they started in Kenya, and it would be—I don't know that they could do their business if they couldn't collect school fees um, over over the cell phone. So, the point being that. I don't. You're going to see businesses built on top of the cell infrastructure because you can't. You can't do a low cost school model. It's really difficult if you have to go out and walk and collect fees. Sure. Whereas if you can transfer it, and there's an expected transfer, or actually we're invested in a company called MCOPA, which is doing um, solar lanterns, uh, and the way that they that their business model works to reach the poor is they've got a chip that turns off the solar lantern if 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 the customer doesn't pay for the solar lantern okay. so you know it's it's an electricity company it's and the customers pay 40 shillings a month for their electricity and it's an alternative to sort of kerosene which costs you know costs more money than the 40 cents a shilling for this solar lantern and if they and the and the beauty of it so it's a solar lantern it's an electricity company but you couldn't do it you couldn't make it work if you didn't have the chip in there that allows you to finance it and allows them to pay on a regular, and the payments over, over the cell phone. So this is just the beginning and of a wave of things that we don't even know are going to sit on top of this infrastructure.
2: Is there anything brewing that's essentially like an industrial size 3d printer where you can send a machine into a, into an area and very quickly and expensively, you know, create housing?
0: Oh yeah. Haven't you seen them?
2: Well, I've seen, <laughs> but I've seen, I've seen prototypes for like, oh, look, if we're yeah. going to land, yeah. like if we're going to create like a lunar colony or like build something on Mars. One of the things that they would need to do is have machines, you know, as opposed to guys in spacesuits, like construction guys in spacesuits, like, oh, it's hot today, you know, <laughs> like go in, uh, basically go in and, and spit out three dimensionally, you know, like structures with a cheap composite material and, and create housing
0: yeah we've got hundreds of those around. The <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> maybe that's a good investment opportunity we should bring to us
2: okay do you want to give me money to make a big machine that spits out stuff
0: next time you see Bill ask it
2: okay I'll just say it like that I, I can write it on a napkin and be like here's my uh, idea you just draw a
3: treehouse. how about this you write this
1: 3D? Question
2: mark? <laughs> well, but it is, you know, I, I think... Uh, we
0: get a lot of drones business plans.
2: Oh my god, I'm sure now, right? hmm I'm very
0: excited by drones. You are?
2: No. No, it's weird, <laughs> I didn't right?
0: say no. Ask Bill about that, too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I already talked to him. I'll have to be the next time. Yeah, it is sort of like... that. It, how did so? How would how would a dr- what are people pitching? How does how does a drone help humanity? Well, go ask Jeff Bezos. He thinks it'll be great when.
0: You yeah, that's do that. a better idea. Don't ask Bill. Ask
3: <laughs> well,
2: but Jay Jay was talking about. Well, okay, so Jay was talking about like part of the way you know like part of the way to sort of control and nip disease in the bud is, is surveillance. Mm-hmm. So like maybe maybe drones are a way to.
0: I, I joke. We we aren't investing in drones, but I and I and it sounds like a crazy idea. Um, but I, I, all joking aside, like those are the kinds of out of the box ideas that we actually, but grounded in some sort of reality sure. that we, we do need to think about, we need to be thinking about taking risk on outliers. Um, and so we do, uh, I'm not necessarily drones, but that's the, that's the kind of thing that we want. Great ideas and great minds thinking about this stuff. What, what's, what's sort of the most,
2: what, what is, what is the, the farthest outlier in your portfolio right now where, Anyone else would have thought, like, that's a crazy idea. But then you saw it and you went, you know what? I think maybe there are some interesting applications here. Like, that part of that discovery process must mm-hmm. be fun for you. Oh, it's
0: fun. Especially seeing as I have no idea what anybody's talking about. <laughs> My favorite?
2: <laughs> I feel like you know what people are talking My about. My
0: favorite is the chymos.
2: I don't know what was. So
0: is. a lot of our crazy stuff is really in the um, life sciences space. We do a lot of early-stage biotech investing, and it is pretty wild when you look, one, at the things that people are producing, but also the potential to really dramatically change the way that we treat Um, you know, infectious diseases and human health more broadly. Like, it's not just going to be about our priorities. It's going to be about, you know, the the types of medicines that you would get. So um, let me tell you about the KyMab. So we invested in a company called KyMab, which is run by Alan Bradley, who's this brilliant, you know, Nobel Prize-level scientist out of Cambridge. He runs the Sanger Institute, which was one of the partners for the human genome mapping. So just a brilliant guy, nicest guy in the world. Um, And he started a company... That basically, so if you think about product development, and product development in the pharmaceutical industry is incredibly expensive. It's like over $2 billion to develop a new therapy or a new vaccine. And that's the reason why medicines are so expensive. And we can't tolerate that because we're trying to get, you know, you talked to Jay about polio. We need, you know, we need 10 cent OPV, we need under a dollar IPV vaccines because we just can't afford it. The, do- the world can't afford you know, to take these expensive Western medicines and pay the same price for these poor countries. So we're constantly looking for ways to lower, whether it's the price of vaccines in manufacturing, but in our in our biotech portfolio, it's really how do we lower the product development costs. So what Alan did is, if you look at the way product development done, and I'm speaking, I really don't know anything about this. My science people could explain it. But you've got um, a process that goes, what they do is when they have a new therapeutic they start with a mouse, they inject it into a mouse, and they see what the response is. And then it goes to rhesus monkeys. And then eventually it gets into humans. But the problem, and rhesus monkeys are actually modeled the human immune system really well. Mice don't. So the, the error rate from a mouse to, from a mouse is, is really high. And so historically you, go in a mouse, and you go to monkey, and it doesn't work, you go back to the mouse, and you... <laughs>
2: Sucks to be a rhesus monkey. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sucks to be a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> so what Alan did, is he engineered the mouse to mimic the human immune system. <laughs> and crazy. we call it the Chi-Mouse. And literally, you can go to Cambridge, and you can go in, and, or go to Chimab, and you can go in, and you see these mouse. They're the chi mouse. And what it's done is, it's it's it, we're shortening the cycle, and we're doing a bunch of these different things. But I mean, that's crazy. Like, how do you how do you engineer a mouse to be human? I know, I know.
2: But he did it somehow. But he did it somehow. Well, so uh, so I have a couple investment ideas. Uh, one is a drone chicken that poops out <laughs> condoms.
0: So, uh, Perfect. So you, you talked to Bill about that. one. Yeah, yeah. I was going to mention that. I was going to mention my drone chicken. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah,
2: yeah. The other one is a smart rat, where you basically uh, engineer a rat to uh, to have uh, beneficial viruses. And then they go bite people and effectively inoculate them. So I I, I feel like if, if you could if uh, I could can just you get arrange
0: a meeting with yes yeah. I think Is eighty to a hundred million should be
2: good seed money to sort of get get those ideas yeah. off the ground. That, you, you know are, like,
0: you know you are just overwhelming me with your genius. Well I know <laughs> and, and so so
2: one so I think the slogan would be like let's make this chicken fly. Like I think
0: that would be a really good.
2: If you're willing to, you know, commit to that now, I mean, it's...
0: it's... Like I said, bring it up with Beth.
2: Okay, I will. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say before before we let you go, or anything else that's important that you feel like people should know, or...
3: No, I'm... it's been fun. All right, good.
2: Well, why don't you get back to work okay. uh, helping so people much. invest money to save the humanity. It was really great talking yeah, to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Julie, so okay. much.
3: Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.